And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. Have you ever come to a place in your spiritual life where you can, where you know for certain that if you were to die today that you would go to heaven? Now that's one of two questions that, that those who are trained in evangelism explosion are asked as a prelude to presenting the gospel. Now most people will go, well yeah, I think so or whatever, and so you ask the second question. Suppose that you were to die today and you were standing before God and He were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, I hope you can see the importance of answering those questions correctly. Now, some have complete assurance <laughs> that they are going to heaven when they die, but they wrongly based on that assurance on uh, their belief that they're good enough to qualify for heaven. How horrible to die and to find out that you're not good enough to make it to heaven. I mean, there's not going to be any makeup exams, no do-overs, no mulligans, no second chances. It's crucial to know that your hope for, for heaven is sure. But Christians are divided with regard to assurance of salvation. At the Council of Trent, this was in the mid-1500s, uh, mid the Roman Catholic Church, they declared, no one can know uh, with a certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. In other words, there is no certainty of assurance. Among Protestants, those from the Armenian wing, Wesleyan, Methodists, Holiness, Pentecostals, Assemblies of God, etc., they argue that true believers through sin can lose their salvation and actually fall from grace. So assurance at that point depends on you. Those who hold the Reformed view believe that those whom Christ has genuinely, genuinely saved, He will keep into, unto eternity. Now, there are difficult texts such as the warning passages in Hebrews, but I believe that the Reformed view makes the most sense of all of Scripture. Those whom Christ saves, He keeps for all eternity. As Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a, good work, or began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, our text is one of the strongest arguments for assurance of salvation that we find in the Bible. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote, The argument of these two verses, 9 and 10, is, I suggest, the most powerful argument with respect to assurance of salvation or the finality of our salvation that can be found anywhere in the whole of the Scripture, end quote. He goes on to say that the only thing that surpasses that is the immediate witness of the Holy Spirit, and Paul actually talks about that in Romans eight sixteen. Now, since being assured of your salvation is an important part of your foundation for your spiritual growth, it's valid that you understand and apply these verses that we are studying here today. Now, our text looks at our basis for assurance. As Paul enumerates the blessings of being justified by faith, he began that back in verse 1 of chapter 5. He takes these blessings to um, another level. To, uh, it, it's a logical step by arguing from the greater to the lesser. Now, this is a common argument type. And we see this by the twice-repeated much more in verse 9 and 10. 
He reasons, if we were justified by Christ's blood when we were yet sinners, and if we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son while we were His enemies, then we can expect to be saved from God's wrath uh, by the risen Savior. Now, it's also an argument from the past to the future. If in the past uh, God loves us, has loved us, and Christ died for us while we were sinners, then we can expect that in the future He's going to keep us from judgment as, as those who have been reconciled to Him. Now, this in turn causes us to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. That's verse 11. Thus, if as God's enemies we were saved through the death of His Son, then praise God as His friends, the risen Savior will save us from future judgment. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning just to bow the knee and say that we love you and thank you for all of your goodness and all of the wonderful blessings that you give us in Christ Jesus. There's nothing good that comes our way outside of Christ. And so we thank you so much for that. We ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning to give us that assurance, Lord, as we, as we look at Paul's argument here that just makes so much sense. Father, I pray that it would bring joy to our hearts and just a spring in our step as we go forward in our walk with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I added praise God to that summary sentence to reflect Paul's uh, just response in verse 11 to his arguments in verses 9 and 10. In other words, these aren't just rational arguments that you hear and calmly conclude, yes, I agree. No, the force of the argument should cause us to rejoice in God. Verses 9 and 10 are essentially the same argument looked at from two slightly different perspectives. Um, the force of the arguments uh, should cause us to rejoice in God, in God. So number one, if while we were sinners, we were justified by Christ's blood, then much more, there's one of the much mores, then much more we shall be saved from God's wrath through Him. That's verse 9. Now, there are two parts to this. A, while we were sinners, we were justified by Christ's blood. Now, being justified, that goes all the way back to the entire argument of 324 through 425, and that's kind of summarized as redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. And this shows us that justification is not something that we deserve. It's not something that we merit or that we qualify for because of our good works. Uh, rather, it's the undeserved gift of God. In 5.1, Paul shows that the means by which we uh, uh, receive God's gracious gift of justification is by faith. We saw this especially in chapter 4, verse 5. Paul writes, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So faith lays hold of the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the just payment for our sins so that God credits the righteousness of Christ to the guilty sinner who has faith in Him. So faith is the means of receiving the gift of justification. But in 5.9, Paul says that we have been justified by His blood. Now, this is looking at the ground or the basis of our justification. Exactly how are we justified? Well, the blood of Christ alone atones for our sin. Paul stated back in 3.25, God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation in His blood to demonstrate His righteousness. 
Christ's blood satisfied the righteousness of God, which declares the wages of sin is death. Now, also, our text makes it clear that justification is a completed action. It's a done deal. Paul uses the same verb form here that he did in 5.1. And, and in 5.1, he says, having, therefore, having been justified by faith, past tense. Here in 5.9, he says, we have now been justified by his blood. It's a completed, a past completed action that the believer knows has taken place. When we trust in Christ and his shed blood to save us, God banged the gavel and he declared not guilty. The penalty has been paid by my son. And from this sure fact, Paul argues, B, much more will we be, will be saved from God's wrath through Christ. Now, what's Paul referring to here by wrath? Well, he's talking about the coming day of judgment. He's talked about this already back in chapter 2, verse 5. There he says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is a present manifestation of God's wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men in which God gives them over to their sin and its consequences. We saw this back in chapter 1. Remember verse 24, 26, and 28? God gave them over. He gave them over. Three times says He gave them over. But that is nothing compared to the coming eternal wrath of God, where all who have not been justified by faith will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, it's important to grasp Paul's much more line of reasoning here. To send Christ to shed His blood, that was the big thing. It was the only way that God could maintain His righteousness and at the same time forgive sinners. Here Paul wants us to know how we can be sure that on that awful day we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him, through Christ. And then Paul repeats the same idea but with just a little bit different slant. slant. This is uh, point number two here. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, then how much more shall we be saved by His life? This is looking at verse 10. Again, there are two parts to consider. A, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. Now, justification looks at salvation from the legal standpoint. It's a legal declaration by God, not guilty. Okay? Reconciliation looks at salvation from the, uh, uh, the relational point of view. So, Verse 10 picks up on the theme of God's love for us, demonstrated by sending Christ to die for us, as Rick read, while we were yet sinners. That's verse 8. But here the focus is, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Notice Paul refers to Jesus as His Son. And that especially brings out the love of the Father, both for Jesus and for us. Jesus was God's beloved Son in whom He was well pleased. The Father loved the Son with a perfect, unbroken love from all eternity. Yet He sent Him to die on the cross so that we, His enemies, could be reconciled to Him. This is just unfathomable. Now, enemies is the strongest in the string of synonyms, not synonyms, 
synonyms that Paul used to describe our, our, our condition before coming to Christ. Paul says in verse 6 that we were weak. That means that we were totally able to do anything to save ourselves or to help out in the process. In verse 6, he also says we were ungodly, and that's because of our many sins. In verse 8, he calls us sinners, having violated God's holy commandments. But worst of all, we were God's enemies. That's what verse 10 tells us. The word implies active hostility, both from our side towards God and from God's side towards us. From our side, we didn't want uh, God's rightful lordship. We didn't want to submit to that. Uh, we wanted to block him out of our lives so that we could basically do what we want to do. We viewed him as the spoiler of all of our fun. Paul describes our enmity with God in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. He says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Now, many might protest and say, well, I'm not hostile towards God. I don't have anything against Him. But they show their hostility by their indifference toward His love. They're happy if He just stays out of their lives and, and lets them live as they please. So in that sense, they are the enemies of God. But the greater hostility is not from our side to His, but from God's hostility towards unrepentant sinners. From God's side, He's opposed to all that is evil and to everyone who is in rebellion against Him. They are His enemies. Now, Philippians 3.18, Colossians 1.21, and James 4.4, they all affirm that outside of Christ, all those outside of Christ are enemies of God. And He will eventually judge all who do not willingly bow before His Son. Now, when Jesus comes again, He's pictured as a powerful warrior whose robe is dipped in blood, who strikes down all the rebels with the, sh the, the, the sharp sword, two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth as he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. This is God's hostility toward all who do not submit to Jesus. He cannot have fellowship with those who walk in darkness. But our text says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Now, reconciliation, that is a wonderful word. One of the all too rare but great joys of being a pastor is when I have some part in seeing a couple who are hostile toward one another to see them reconciled, to see them come together again. But it's even a greater joy to see sinners reconciled to God through the death of Jesus, which removed the barrier of our sin. As Leon Morris states, the death of Christ puts away our sin, which has aroused not our opposition, but God's. So the idea here is not that we first ceased to be hostile toward God, but that through the death of His Son, he could cease to be hostile towards us, those whom He has purposed to save. It was through the cross that God put to death the enmity contained in the law of commandments that we had violated so that we now could be re reconciled to Him. So when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. 
will be much more, having now been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Charles Hedge, uh, Hodge, he captures a logic saying, if Christ had di has died for his enemies, he will surely save his friends. So if God did the really hard thing by reconciling us to himself through the death of his son, it only follows that we shall be saved at that future judgment by or literally in his life, in Christ. Now, Paul is going to develop the idea that we share in his life. He's going to do that in chapter 6. We are now completely identified with Christ in his, in his death and his resurrection life. Paul also explains this in Colossians 3, uh, verses 3 and 4. He says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Because we are now united with Christ as members of his body, sharing his life, we shall be saved from that final judgment. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he gave to him all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus talked about that, right? Uh, what is it? Matthew 28, verse uh, 18. He tells the disciples, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Well, here's what Paul, uh, he exercises this authority for the salvation of his people. This is Romans 8, 33 and 34. It says, God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. This is the risen Son of God interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25 says the same thing. Therefore, He is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Now, we know that our salvation is secure because if God did the greater thing, reconciling us to Himself through the death of His Son, He will do the relatively easier thing by saving us from judgment because we are now partakers of Christ's resurrection life. You remember Jesus promised his disciples in John 14, 9, because I live, you will live also. Paul never put forth a biblical truth as just a dry, boring lecture and then said, mm, class dismissed. These glorious truths about our sure salvation, they should uh, evoke an emotional response. So number three, the result of knowing that you are saved for sure because of God's love and His mercy is to rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is verse 11. The more than that of verse 11, it means don't stop there. Class isn't dismissed yet. You see, if you understand this truth, you've got to rejoice in God. Now, as we've seen, Paul rejoiced in the hope of the glory of God. That was verse 2. In verse 3, Paul rejoiced in his tribulations. But here in verse 11, he rejoices in God himself. Now, to rejoice, that means to glory in or to boast in. It's an emotional word. And Emery's getting emotional now, and that's okay. That's all right, sweetheart. An artist rejoices in a beautiful sunset saying, Isn't that spectacular? Look at those gorgeous colors. A football fan rejoices in a touchdown run, saying, Did you see how he juked all of those defensive backs? 
And those who have been justified by Christ's blood, those who have been reconciled to God through the death of His Son, they rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, isn't God wonderful? There's nothing to compare to His love, His grace, and His tender mercies. There is no love like the love of Christ for sinners. Praise God. The last phrase of verse 11 through whom we have now received reconciliation. That shows that reconciliation is a finished work that we receive, once again, as God's gift. It's an objective, accomplished fact because of the cross. It also shows that all God's blessings come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We like to think that we had something to do with it, <laughs> but it comes straight from His hand. Now, Paul states it as a given that those who have received this reconciliation that we've been talking about, that we now rejoice in God. Here's the question. Do you? Have you spent any time this past week rejoicing in God because of all that He has freely given you through His Son, Jesus Christ? I encourage you to make time each day to open God's Word and to simply pray, Lord, Show me today some of the unfathomable riches of Christ so that I may rejoice in you. Thank you that I have been justified by Christ's blood. Thank you that while I was your enemy, you reconciled me to yourself through the death of your Son. Well, the fact that you are saved for sure, <laughs> that is, justified by Christ's blood, saved from God's wrath, and reconciled to God, although you were His enemy... That ought to cause your heart to rejoice in God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you again just for the revelation that we've seen this morning. Uh, Father, uh, of what you are going to do for us one day because of what you have done in the past. The greatest thing was sending your son to die on the cross for us. It is a little thing for you to take care of us and preserve us through that judgment because we are now identified with your son, Jesus. So, Father, I, think, I just thank you for that uh, truth. I pray that you would submit it into our hearts. Father, that it would change our attitudes. Uh, Lord, that we would be more prone to give you praise wherever we are at because of what you are going to do on that final day. So God, if there's anybody in here this morning that doesn't know you through your son, Jesus Christ, I pray that you would just take the scales off of their eyes, take the wax out of their ears, and, and Father, take the hardness of their heart away so that they can see Jesus for who he really is and be drawn to him. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We're just going to have a short invitation. Uh, I cut down the sermon a little bit because we're going to do communion here in just a minute, which has to do with our justification, which has to do with our reconciliation, all those things. Uh, but if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you, Paul says, today is the day of salvation. Don't put this off. Don't think, oh, well, I can take care of this anytime. I, I wish I could say that were true. None of us are promised another second, right? And I'm not trying to scare you at all. I'm just telling you, this is a serious matter. If something is going on in your heart and you don't understand it, <laughs> that's probably the Holy Spirit saying you need to listen. You need to act. I'm asking you to act this morning. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. He is the one that you have offended. I mean, you understand that, right? When you sin, yeah, you may offend people in your sin, but you're really offending God. David recognized this. He says, against you and you alone have I sinned. All right, so 
ask God to forgive you of your sins and then trust in what Christ did on that cross, right? He forgave us our sins. He saved us from the wrath to come. He reconciled us to God. We're no longer enemies. We're friends. I encourage you this morning, if you made that choice, that decision in your life, do it this morning. If you're a believer, uh, I encourage you just to uh, think about what we've talked about and, and think a little bit ahead of what's coming and rejoice in God. One of the main things that separates the saved from the unsaved is the fact that we give thanksgiving. Paul condemns those who do not thanks, thank God. They do not give Him glory nor give Him thanks. If you're a believer, you have enough to be thankful for for the rest of your life, whether you get another pay raise, whether you ever get a new car, a new house, whatever you might be looking for. If you are saved, you have the ultimate gift. Give thanks to God for it. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, CrawfordvilleFBC.com.